Season 2, Episode 5 of the Bird Life Podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. Can you believe that we're already halfway through Season 2? So today we have two incredible guests. First, I chat to Hans Larsen. Hans is one of the world's best bird artists and was involved in Peter Harrison's Seabirds, The New Identification Guide. He tells us all about his journey as well as what went into painting the plates for this epic field guide. To order your copy of the Seabirds book, head on over to Link's Editions website. I'll pop a link in the show notes. I then have a chat to Dr. Anton Wolfart from the Mouse Free Marion Project. In the interview, he gives us insights into why this project is so important, how the mouse eradication is undertaken, and he gives us a glimpse into the amazing biodiversity found on Marion Island. I learned so much during this interview, so I can't wait for you to hear it. Don't forget to check out the Birding Life's online store, great birding products at great prices. Every week, we have some exciting specials, so be sure to give it a visit. There's a link in the show notes. So, let's get into today's episode. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser Bird Logging app. Spot, plot, play a part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other. Amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously where to find amazing birds. Check out our website at www.thebirdinglife.com, our YouTube channel, our various social media platforms, as well as the other podcasts we host. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help others find the show. So let us get into this week's episode of the Birding Life Podcast. Okay, Hans, I want to welcome you to the show. You are our first ever guest from Sweden. So it's really great to chat to you tonight. Welcome. Thank you very much. What I'm really interested in is you chose to paint birds and you're really amazing bird artist but i can imagine that bird art is a slightly niche market so why did you choose to paint birds uh i i never had uh, had the opportunity to choose uh, actually um it it was uh, something that that just happened uh, as i i started really early to paint birds and and then um, i just painted and painted and all of a sudden uh, i was an artist so I, I never had I never had really the um, the option to 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 choose between uh, different routes. So it, it was just destined for me, I think. So it's like you didn't choose the birds; the birds chose you. Sort of, yes. <laughs> so before I chatted to Peter Harrison, I can be honest with you; I had no idea who you were. But I've done a bit of research, and this is what I found out about you. Firstly, you were born in Gambia, so you are from Africa, but now you live in Sweden. You were previously named Bird Artist of the Year. That's a huge um, accolade. And when I spoke to Peter Harrison, Peter Harrison says that you are the best bird artist around. When Peter Harrison says that, you got to stand up and take notice. So tell us your story as a bird artist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as I um, as I said earlier, I started really early back in kindergarten to to um, 
gain interest in birds and especially painting and drawing birds. Uh, I think I was about five years old or so when I, when I uh, started. And then I, I painted birds for a few years, uh, loaning books from the school library and such. Till one day I realized I could actually see birds in uh, real life and study them. Uh, so it t- took me it took me some time to to get to that point when I became a bird watcher as well. Well, uh, after that, it just uh, went by itself, more or less. The Peter Harrison Seabird Work wasn't the first book that you were involved in. Um, you were involved in other books previously, but how did you end up getting involved in the Seabird book project? Uh, well, uh, one day I got an email from, from Peter uh, and, uh, well... He, he frankly asked me if if I was was interested to to paint these, uh, especially gulls and also terns and skewers for his new guide, and uh, that was a shock, of course, to to uh, receive a, a message from him because I had never had any contact with him uh, prior to that, and uh, of course a great honor uh, to to be asked. To, to participate in, in uh, such a, a monumental project. Uh, pr- probably I didn't realize at that point that it, it was going to take 10 years plus and um, also become uh, such a, well, massive publication and, and uh, gaining reputation all around the world. Uh, I was just focused on, on, uh, on painting the gulls, more or less. We've heard a lot about Peter Harrison. I mean, in the world of birding, he is like a legend. People speak about the talks this guy does. And I know when I got to speak to him, I was really nervous because, yeah, he is just, yeah, he's an amazing, very well-respected person in the birding community. But what was it like working with someone as respected respected as him? I mean, you spoke about the honor, but I can imagine there must be a pressure that comes with working with someone of a stature also. His, his name is... Uh, is uh... It's, it's coming with a lot of respect, of course. So, uh, so, but, but I was also very confident in my own style of painting and, and knowledge of, of these particular birds. Uh, after all, he, he came to me because he, 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 he thought his knowledge on, of, of this particular species uh, was not enough for the book. Uh, so, so um, uh, and also Peter is extremely uh, friendly guy and and uh, very easy to to uh, work with so uh, I- even if I, I i've been and still is very star struck by by working with him it was also very easy so the book was quite a monumental project uh, so tell us about the plates in the book that you were involved in and also tell us about the process that goes into painting those plates yeah. Um, yes. Uh, once again, it, it was um, the l- larger part was the gulls, uh, and then I made the terns, which is also quite large, many species, and uh, smaller part with with skewers, and also as a bonus in the in the end of the project, Peter realized he he he, he needed some sea ducks as well. Actually, he had, he had a few sea ducks in the first uh, version of sea, seabirds, but, but it was not in our contract really um, at the start. So I had to spend 
uh, almost a year additionally for painting the sea ducks as well. Uh, but that was very nice. And, and uh, it's a great way to get to know birds that you don't, don't know so much about to, to have to paint them. So it was a, a, a very nice learning experience for me as well. And then out of all the plates that you painted, which were your favorite family of birds? Um, good question. <laughs> I, I actually love all, all of these um, different birds, but um, I, I especially enjoyed uh, noddies and uh, white terns. Well, these are species I've never seen. Uh, and it may sound strange that, that uh, those are the, the, the species I enjoyed most, but... Uh, uh, the, the number one plate for me in the book is actually the gray and blue nuddies plate. And, and these are birds that I really would like to see one day uh, in, in reality. So what interests me also a lot of times with field guides is there's almost like a lot of guides, there's this consistent art style that comes across throughout the book. Um, when you had to paint you, the images for the book that you were involved in, was there like a mandate to try and keep to the style of the book overall or was there a freedom to just paint according to the style that you always paint according to yeah i, I actually had uh, free free hands to to uh, to compose the plates in in my own uh, manner actually so so um, peter put a lot of trust in in me in that sense uh, and i well i think i think he's uh, satisfied also with the outcome but uh, and, and that's also a, a part of, of uh, the easy collaboration we had because Peter just gave me the liberty to, to uh, make the plates in my, to, my, to my own um, liking. So there might be people that are listening to this who, who know you, might be people who are going to f- discover you after this on Instagram and on various social media platforms. But what advice would you give to other aspiring bird artists out there? I would say study birds in all possible ways. And if, if possible, make simple sketches of the birds. You don't have to, to make art, if you want to call it that. Just drawings for remembering details or, or behaviors or shapes of the birds for your own sake. You don't have to show it to, to anybody, but, but uh, just, uh, just make these notes regularly. It will help you become a better birder. And also, uh, the more you, you uh, practice, you will see that you, that you also um, improve after, after some time. So, well, I can only recommend it. And once you're in that world of drawing and trying to depict uh, a bird you've seen, you get to uh, inside a, 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 another world <laughs> dimension. Uh, it's, it's sounding a bit pretentious, but, but um, you, you lose the sense of uh, the world around when you're like inside and you're very focused on painting a bird. And that's, uh, that's a really great feeling that I, I wish other, others can experience, could experience that as well. So. So you do sell art besides what you had in the book, but how can people around the world, how can they get hold of you to buy artwork from you? Uh, well, uh, I'm on social media, the Instagram, Hans Larsson Bird Art. I have my website, it's uh, hanslarssonbirdart.com. So people can reach me there. And also Facebook, it's Hans Larsson, obviously. 
just uh, get me on social media. What I'll do, I'll pop all those links into the the notes of this podcast episode so it makes it easier for people to find. But yeah, I'm hoping just as we end off, I'm hoping we're going to see you on Flock to Marion. I know we were chatting about it a bit before the episode, so we're hoping borders are going to open and whatever else has to happen so you can be on Flock and then uh, we'll come and we can bring you our book and you and Peter can sign the book. So we're really looking forward to you and hoping to get to meet you. It'll be really great. Um, so Hans, it's been great chatting to you. Thank you so much for your time thank you thanks for having me thank you for listening to this week's episode we really hope you are enjoying the episode if you would like to support us and help grow the show please can we ask that you do two things firstly please share the show on your favorite social media channel Tell us why you enjoy the show and be sure to tag us in the post. This is one of the best ways to help get the word out about the podcast and bring more exposure to the guests that are featured and the conservation issues that are covered. Secondly, to help us cover the costs and to improve the quality of the show, please can you consider buying us a virtual coffee or two? This is a quick, safe and easy way to contribute to the show. You will find a link for this in the notes of the show. So Anton, I want to welcome you to the Burning Life podcast. It's good to have a chat to you. Um, you are the project manager of the Mouse Free Marion project. So how did you end up in this role and what does your role involve? Hi, Adam. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, as, as you mentioned, I'm the project manager of the Mouse Free Marion project. And um, I, I got into this actually through um, my long-term involvement in Marion Island. My conservation career actually started on Marion Island some 27 years ago when I was part of the 51st overwintering team. So from 1994 to 1995, I spent a year on Marion Island um, studying penguins and albatrosses. And I think like most people that visit Marion Island, uh, most people that are lucky enough to spend an entire year there, it has a profound influence on one's life. And it certainly shaped the rest of my conservation career. That was my, my first job as a conservation practitioner. And, and since then, I've been working mostly on seabirds and island conservation uh, with several stints on other islands, uh, including Dusson Island off the west coast of South Africa, where I spent five years, and the Falkland Islands in South Georgia. I was based in the Falklands for five years, working both there in South Georgia and in the Tristan de Cunha Islands. Um, so I've, I've had a, a long interest in Marion Island, and I think as I indicated, as, as most people that get to go there, it, it really does get under your skin and you find yourself wanting to uh, investigate opportunities to return. And uh, immediately prior to this position, um, I was working in the field of seabird bycatch mitigation, uh, trying to find solutions to um, the issue of bycatch of seabirds in commercial fisheries and saw the advert for the position and applied and was lucky enough to get it. So I started in February. It's been an incredible experience ever since. And um, yeah, my role as project manager really is, I suppose, to coordinate and facilitate the planning and implementation of this important project that we'll be implementing. And uh, it's important to say that um, it's not a one-man show. It's, it really is a team effort. Um, as we'll discuss, it's a, it's a partnership between the South African government and, and specifically the Department of Forestry, Fisheries and the Environment and BirdLife South Africa. And um, they, we have a small project team, myself as project manager. Uh, we have an operations manager, um, somebody called Keith Springer, who is one of the world experts in 
island eradication initiative. So we're very lucky to have him as our operations manager. Uh, we have a communications officer and uh, we have just recently appointed a fundraising manager. So that forms the small project team, but um, the number of people involved in the project is, is much larger than that. Uh, we have a number of representatives from the Department of Forestry, Fisheries and Environment and BirdLife South Africa who all play integral roles in the project in terms of the steering committees and the management committees. We also have a scientific and technical, uh, technical advisory group, which is chaired by Professor Peter Ryan. And, and that group comprises some 50 scientists and experts who all voluntarily provide advice and guidance to the project to ensure that we are um, implementing it in, in the best way possible. So it, it really is an incredible experience. And it's, it's very humbling to be working on a project like this together with so many people who have um, committed enthusiastically to the planning and to the implementation of the project because they're passionate to uh, ensure that we reach the goal, which is to restore Marion Island to its, its former glory. So for those who have had under the foggiest idea about Marion Island, can you firstly tell us about the island and what are some of the species that the island hosts? Sure, yeah, Adam. Um, well, in short, it's an absolutely spectacular place. It's a subantarctic island. It's located in the southwest Indian Ocean uh, in an area we call the subantarctic. And um, Marion actually is part of an archipelago, uh, which comprises two islands. Marion is the larger of the two islands at about 30,000 hectares um, or 300 square kilometers. Uh, with the neighboring island, which is called Prince Edward Island, uh, about 19 kilometers away and considerably smaller than Marion Island. It is a South African-owned island, and it is South Africa's only special nature reserve. Now, that is the highest level of protection that is given to a protected area in South Africa. And it just really highlights the importance of this island. And it's to understand its importance uh, for seabirds and especially, but also for other marine predators and more generally, one must understand its location in the very productive Southern Ocean. So the island is located, uh, I suppose, roughly halfway between Cape Town and Antarctica in a very productive part of the Southern Ocean. And this high level of productivity supports huge numbers of seabirds and other marine predators, such as seals and cetaceans. Um, and as we all know, these seabirds, um, although they spend the majority of their time at sea foraging on the bountiful food that they find there, they do need to return to land to, to breed, to rest, and in some cases, such as in penguins, to molt. And so because there are so few of these subantarctic islands, uh, they tend to be sites where there are huge assemblages of seabirds that congregate there. And um, if one just considers Marion Island uh, and the Prince Edward Island group, there are, well, in, in the group, there are 29 species of seabird, uh, 28 of them which breed on, on Marion Island. Uh, and all of these except one are seabirds. Um, the one exception is the lesser sheathbill or the black-faced sheathbill, which is a shorebird, which um, some people might be familiar with. It's uh, uh, the, the species that, or the subspecies that breeds on Marion Prince Edward is actually endemic to that island group. So the so the, the island itself is just absolutely spectacular. I mean, it's it's heaving with wildlife, you know, just huge big colonies of, of seabirds, massive coli, colonies of king penguins and macaroni penguins with um, smaller colonies of uh, gentoo penguins and, and uh, rockhopper penguins. And uh, the island also hosts um, globally important um, proportions of 
world populations of a number of albatross and petrel species. Uh, and if you just take the iconic wandering albatross, for example, uh, about half or almost half of the world population of wandering albatrosses is uh, found on the Prince Edward Island group with Marion Island alone supporting about a quarter of those. So an incredibly important place, a spectacular place, but it used to be even more spectacular before the arrival of mice and, uh, and cats. And we'll get to that a little bit later. So you spoke earlier about the fact that you are part of an overwintering team. I'm always interested about those who work on the island. So for those who are based on the island, what is it like working on Marion? Well, if you have a sense of adventure and like wild places, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Um, if you like shopping malls and high-speed internet, then perhaps it's not for you. It is an incredible experience. And as I said earlier, um, I think most people that um, are lucky enough to overwinter on Marion uh, remain connected to the island. So uh, when I was on Marion Island um, in 94, 95, the teams tended to be quite a lot smaller then. Um, I was in a team of 11 people. The teams nowadays comprise, I suppose, roughly 18 to 20 individuals, depending on the number of projects that are underway. And the teams, uh, the membership of the team comprises uh, a number of biological field assistants, people that are working on seabirds or seals, geologists, uh, botanists, geomorphologists. Meteorologists, the island has for a long time been an important weather station. In fact, um, soon after the island was annexed in 1948, South Africa established a weather station. And uh, we've actually had a a number of um, ecological programs that have been underway for many decades. And South Africa really has been at the forefront of um, sub-Antarctic research uh, and especially long-term research that has been conducted in this area. So you've got, as I say, the field assistants. Um, there are uh, a number of support staff, medics, uh, diesel mechanics, base engineer, um, conservation officers. Um, and the infrastructure on the island, again, has changed um, over the last couple of decades. When I was on the island, uh, we had the old base, which is still actually standing. But um, in, the, in the sort of early 2000s, they started building a much more modern base with lots of amenities, including laboratories and office space and um, you know, really sophisticated base now that uh, exists on Marion Island. Um, and so that houses the team that are overwintering. And then there are a number of field huts that are dotted around the island, which are very useful uh, to enable you to do field work away from the base. So it's, it's, a, it's an incredible experience. It's an experience which I think, you know, as I say, those of us that like wild places and wildlife feel very lucky to have, have experienced. And, um, and, and the sort of team camaraderie aspect of it is also really useful. And you sort of, I suppose, in a way, you are sort of disconnected from the outside world for the year that you're there. So you tend to focus on the interactions with other team members and really appreciate what, uh, what you have available to you on the island. It sort of kind of makes you appreciate the sort of the simpler and I suppose more important things in life. So let's look at the project, the Mastery Marion project. Tell us about the project and why it's so important. Sure, Adam. So, I mean, perhaps it's useful just to kind of step back and provide a little bit of background. As I mentioned, it's an incredibly important site for seabirds and for other sub-Antarctic biodiversity. And Prince Edward Island, which is the neighboring island, fortunately has escaped the introduction of any uh, mammalian predators. And it remains one of the most pristine Southern Ocean islands that exists. Marion Island, like many islands and other sub-Antarctic islands, unfortunately hasn't escaped those uh, introductions and invasions. 
And um, in the uh, in the early 1800s, when seal hunters were visiting the island, it was a time when huge numbers of fur seals and some elephant seals were being harvested. They took with them accidentally some stowaway mice, which established themselves on the island and would have started to spread. It, uh, so so those, those mice have been on the island for some 200 years already. And uh, we have known for some time that the mice are having an impact on the ecology of Marion Island. Uh, it's only relatively recently that we have started observing that impact uh, on seabirds. But what happened when South Africa annexed uh, the island in 1948 was that some of the first personnel that were based on the island, you know, they found the mice uh, that would be at the base and would eat their, you know, their, their food that they had there to be a bit of a pest. And so they thought at the time it would be a good idea to bring along a couple of cats that would be uh, useful to deal with these pesky mice at the base. And you know, to us now, that seems completely ludicrous. But I suppose the conservation mindset in those days was very different to what it is nowadays. Unsurprisingly to us now, um, those cats uh, left the, the base and discovered an absolutely incredible variety of food out on the island in the form of burrowing petrels. And very quickly, that uh, cat population grew. And by the 1970s, there were some 2,000 cats on Marion Island, and they were estimated to be killing almost 500,000 seabirds every single year. So that's phenomenal, mostly burrowing petrels, clearly unsustainable. But fortunately, South Africa had the foresight to uh, start investigating the possibility of eradicating cats from the island. And that's what happened over the course of some 15 years. A, a number of different approaches were used, introducing a special virus, um, using trapping and hunting methods. And over about 15 years, uh, cats were eradicated from Marion Island. And at the time, it was considered to be a very difficult prospect. Uh, nobody had ever attempted to eradicate cats from an island the size of Marion. And so it was incredibly uh, uh, something that South Africa should be very proud of. So now with cats eradicated by 1991, that left only one um, invasive mammalian predator, the house mouse. And a number of studies had been documenting and showing that these mice were having a significant impact on the ecology of Marion Island. They were uh, eating in very large quantities invertebrates, and, uh, and these invertebrates are very important for nutrient cycling. So it was leading to the impoverishment of the ecosystem processes on the island. But at the time, it was considered to be, um, you know, it wasn't considered to be a viable prospect that one could actually eradicate mice from an island the size of Marion. We knew in some of those early days in the sort of, I suppose, mid-1990s that the mice, through their predation of the invertebrates, were having an impact on the lesser sheathbill, the shorebird species that I mentioned earlier, uh, because they were competing with the lesser sheathbill for those invertebrates, especially in the wintertime. And that competition uh, was leading to um, the sheathbill being able to find less food in the wintertime. And, uh, and therefore reducing its breeding success and survival. And unfortunately, another element of the story is that um, the climate on Marion Island has changed quite considerably over the last 20 to 30 years. The, um, it has become drier and warmer. And what that's done is it's enabled mice to in increase the length of their breeding season. And because they are such rapid breeders, that's led to a huge escalation in the numbers of mice on the island. And, and that's led to them completely decimating the biomass of the invertebrates and some of the seeds of plants on the island. 
to the extent that when the numbers start crashing in the wintertime and they're desperate for food, they have now started resorting to um, preying on seabirds. And, and this was first uh, documented in the early 2000s when records of mice attacking wandering albatrosses were first uh, observed. And um, it was very sporadic and quite infrequent and localized uh, when these observations first started. But at the same time, um, similar observations were taking place on Gough Island. And the research at Gough Island was showing that this was likely to increase in scale and intensity. And it certainly rang all sorts of warming bills, warning bills for us on Marion. And ongoing research and monitoring of Marion unfortunately showed that this is indeed what happened. By about 2015, we started seeing uh, an increase in the extent, the distribution and the frequency of these attacks to the extent that it is now thought that the majority of Marion Island seabirds face a very real risk of local extinction if the mice are not eradicated. So a big question, why do you feel that the project will be, will be a success? Uh, has this kind of operation been done anywhere else before? It has. And as I mentioned earlier, it perhaps when I was on Marion Island some 27 years ago, we would not have contemplated that this is something that would be possible. But um, there have been a number of operations. The number of operations that have been attempted and have been successfully completed continues to grow. And each operation provides lessons for subsequent operations. And there's been a huge development in the methodological approaches and the technology with which um, these operations have been implemented. Uh, and it's important to say at the outset that the methodological approach that we'll be using uh, is not based on novel or experimental approaches. Uh, it's the sort of culmination of more than 30 years of development and implementation involving hundreds of successful eradications on, um, that have been done across the world. And, and one of the main advances that have been made is the use of technology, the use of... Um, so the, the way that the operation would work is essentially, it sounds very simple, but logistically it's much more complex, is essentially... We use a rodenticide bait, and we need to make sure that that bait covers the entire extent of the island. Every single mouse territory needs to receive sufficient bait for mice to consume enough to receive a lethal dose, uh, because this is an eradication operation, which I'm sure your listeners will appreciate is very different to a control operation. Control operation where you're trying to keep numbers down at a negligible level you don't need to kill every single individual. But with an eradication operation, um, you need to kill every single individual mouse, and uh, including those that are on um, cliff faces or in lava tubes. And so uh, on an island the size of Marion, as I said earlier, it's 30,000 hectares, and an island that is as topographically complex as Marion, the only way that we can achieve that is to use helicopters that uh, make use of GPS technology, and we also make use of geographical information systems to track and monitor the precision with which these helicopters are um, sowing bait. And they use specialized bait, bait buckets that then uh, sow the bait using transects, and we can then monitor to see how accurately that bait is being used. And so, as I said, the I mean, there have been over 600 islands now which uh, um, have undertaken rodent eradication operations. And we are following in the footsteps of many successful operations. I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with operations to eradicate rats and mice in South Georgia, um, Macquarie Island um, off of Australia, um, the Antipodes Islands in New Zealand, Campbell Island. Gough Island recently has completed the baiting component of its operation. And so 
each of those lessons has contributed towards our overall understanding of how best to undertake an operation like this. And we have benefited from all of those lessons. It, it will remain a huge challenge. The project has a high risk profile, largely because of the size of the island. Marion will be the largest island on which an eradication of mice has been attempted in a single operation. And also because of the remote nature of the island. The island is some 2,000 kilometers away from Cape Town. And so logistically, it's very challenging. We need to get a, a fleet of helicopters across to the island. The baiting team uh, will be operating um, in the wintertime. And uh, that's when the weather conditions are most inclement. And so that brings a, couple of, you know, brings a whole lot of challenges. And so some of those factors, such as the weather, we can't control. But we can certainly plan for those. We can include contingency components in our planning to make sure that we have sufficient time to uh, complete the baiting work that we need to do to uh, um, ensure that the eradication operation has a high chance of success. So there are lots of warnings about using poisons to kill rats in household and how it negatively impacts the environment, especially around owls and that kind of thing. But for the mass eradication, you're going to be used, as the website says, serial bait pellets laced with poison. It sounds scary in itself already. Doesn't this have a negative impact on the environment? Yes, Adam, as I said, we, we, we are using a, a methodological approach and products which have a proven track record. Uh, the, one of the main principles of our project is that we are not going to be experimenting with um, approaches that have not been tried and tested on islands similar to Marion. And the only approach which has proven successful at eradicating rats and mice on large subantarctic islands is the use of rodenticide poisons um, in, a, in a bait matrix. So the, the rodenticide that we'll be using is called bodifacum. Um, it's what's called a second-generation anticoagulant, and it essentially kind of interferes with the production of vitamin K and affects the blood clotting system in vertebrates. So it, it is a poison, but as I said earlier, there have been huge numbers of projects which have made use of this approach. And so we know from those projects and from experimental work, the likely impacts of Bodificum. So the toxin itself is, um, so, so it's, it's useful to understand that uh, we use a very small amount of toxin within the bait. And what is it, let me just step back a bit first and say, the bait comprises two components. You've got the, um, the, the toxin, which is, as I said, Bodificum, um, and then you've got the, the bait matrix, which is, uh, in, in our case, going to be a serial-based matrix, which is the component which makes the bait palatable to the mice. And uh, the amount of toxin within the bait is, is tiny. It's literally it's 20 parts per million. So if, hypothetically, we were using 300 tons of bait, that would equate to about 6 kilograms of toxin. So it's a, a minuscule amount of toxin within the bait, but that is sufficient to be a lethal dose for mice. Uh, and so a huge amount of research has gone into working out all the different components of the bait. We're not just going and buying bait, rodenticide bait, from the shelf of some store. This is a product that has been, um, that's gone, undergone huge research and development. And um, the, the toxin itself is not soluble in water. And so there's no risk of it like leaching into the environment. It, it binds strongly to soil particles and dis disintegrates over time. And so um, you know, there's, there's no concern with um, the impact on the environment through water or through things like that. 
Um, the one issue which we which we do need to be mindful about is that it it isn't a very specific bet. As I said, it affects the blood clotting system of all vertebrates, and so if other vertebrates eat the bait uh, and if they eat sufficient quantities of it, they could also die. And so, um, fortunately, most of the wildlife on Marion Island um, obtain their food from the marine environment, and so are not at risk of consuming the bait. Um, there are a few exceptions. The sheep bull, as I said, is a, is a generalist and, and may consume bait, but um, the research, the trials that have been done so far show that they are not inclined to eat bait as readily as we thought they might be. But then there are some scavengers and predatory birds on the island which might not eat the bait, but what they might do is they might eat um, mouse carcasses that they find. And if they eat enough of those, then those individuals may succumb to the poisoning effects of the bait. So this is something that has been uh, that continues to be very seriously and carefully considered through our risk assessment process, and is also something which we understand well from um, other operations and from the ecology of these susceptible species. And the the whole sort of um, premise of our project is that we're proceeding on the basis that that there will be. A net ecological benefit that the benefits of the program far outweigh any short-term costs and we're, and we're confident that that is the case but uh, as i say we are still undertaking further risk assessment work and we've appointed an expert advisory panel to look at how we can practically um, minimize any um, non-target species impacts and so that uh, and some of the things that we will be doing for example is we will be doing the baiting operation in winter time and there are two reasons for that. The one is that the um, the mice the mice population kind of largely sort of collapses during the winter time. They're desperate for food, and so they'll be most likely to be driven to eat the bait and therefore consume the uh, lethal dose that they require or that we require for them to die as a result of that. And the second reason is that the majority of the seabirds on the island actually leave the island in the winter time, and so. Um, there's less of a risk of some of those species being exposed potentially to um, carcasses of mice. The other thing is that we know from previous operations that most mice that die as a result of the poisoning will actually die underground in their burrows. But there will be some probably that, that do die above ground and will be available to scavenging and predatory birds. And we do expect that there will be some individuals of those species that uh, will succumb to the poisoning effects. But what our assessment needs to do is to make sure that um, those um, potential impacts are not of any concern at a population level. The other issue that is something that we need to bear in mind is that the neighboring Prince Edward Island, as I mentioned earlier, does not have mice. It will not be baited. And it has reservoir populations of some of the uh, species um, whose individuals or some of, um, from some of the individuals might be impacted. And so those reservoir populations provide a useful um, source from which um, you know populations on Marion, some of which might lose some individuals, could be replenished. So it's, there is an issue with poison that we have to consider very carefully um, the potential impacts on species that we are not targeting. But uh, this is something that we are um, busy assessing and have full confidence from other projects and from work that we have done already and continue to do that um, the overall benefits of the project will far outweigh any, um, any impacts and that those impacts will be transitory, short-term and reversible. So your website says that the project will cost around 30 million rand. What makes up this massive cost? Adam, so actually the project will cost quite a bit more than 30 million. The 30 million rand refers to 
the target that we've set for the sponsor a hectare crowdfunding initiative. So that's one of the fundraising kind of initiatives that we have to meet the overall target. And um, we're still busy with the budget preparations, but it is it is a costly project. And the reason that it's costly is that there are, you know, it, we are going to be undertaking a significant operation in a remote location. The bait itself will cost probably around 30 million rand. And that's um, kind of where we got the figure of 30 million rand from as the sort of target figure for the um, sponsor a hectare initiative. We'll be using a fleet of helicopters. So uh, we'll be needing to employ specialist pilots, pilots that have had experience with this kind of operation before to fly those helicopters. Uh, those helicopters and the baiting team need to be taken from Cape Town through to Marion Island on the SA Gullis 2, which uh, you know comes at a considerable cost. You know, the logistics of an operation like this are hugely complex and, and costly. So this, this is a lot of money, but it, it is a once-off investment for a very high-value ecosystem that will provide conservation returns in perpetuity. Uh, the other thing to say is that this is a public-private partnership, and um, the, it's a partnership between the Department of Forestry, Fisheries and Environment and BirdLife South Africa, who have also set up uh, a non-profit company as an entity to help facilitate the, um, the work of the project. This is something which um, will provide an incredible lasting conservation legacy for a very important sub-Antarctic island. And uh, it's a, it's a once-off intervention that, as I say, will lead to kind of ongoing conservation benefits, not only for Marion Island and for South Africa, but globally because of the importance of the island for uh, world populations of species such as wandering albatross and grey-headed albatross. So we think it is a very worthwhile investment in a tractable conservation problem. You know, I think for many of us involved in the conservation movement, um, many of the conservation challenges we face are, are challenges that require um, long-term, ongoing kind of initiatives to change shifts in, in attitude and policy with respect to climate change, for example. And, you know, th there's, there's never a silver bullet when it comes to conservation. But I think when it comes to seabirds that are threatened by invasive predators on islands, eradication of those predators comes very close to being a silver bullet. We know from previous operations that the conservation benefits are phenomenal and can be quite rapid. Um, and it really is a tractable conservation problem which does cost, and um, but a very worthwhile investment, I'd like to suggest. And then lastly, but most importantly, how can people who are listening to the show get involved in the project? Because I know we have listeners from all around the world, and I'm sure this will strike a chord with at least one person. So how can they get involved and donate towards the project? Yeah, thank you very much, Adam. Well, I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, we have a crowdfunding initiative where supporters can donate a hectare or more um, if you visit our website, which is www.mousefreemarion.org. There's an opportunity there to, as I say, sponsor a hectare or more. And we greatly appreciate every bit of support that we can get. Um, there's also an opportunity to sign up to our newsletters. Um, we provide regular updates on the project. Um, we've recently appointed a fundraising manager who will be leading uh, the effort to um, raise the uh, funding that we need through foundations, through corporate sponsors, and through various other means. So I think uh, the, the best thing, Adam, is to uh, to ask your uh, your guests to visit the website, have a look there, and, and certainly we would be very grateful for any contributions that they can make. And 
I look forward to being able to provide further feedback. This is, as I say, an exciting and important and urgent conservation initiative and uh, a great opportunity to be involved in something which um, I think will make a real difference. And I, you know, I, I've been thinking about this project for, you know, ever since I started, obviously, and it, it really is, it, it, to me, it seems like an amazing opportunity to showcase what we can do both in South Africa and globally, when we come together as a you know, public-private sector partnership with science and the community to, to really make a difference. There's, there's, a, there's a problem, there's a threat here. We know what the solutions are. It's, it's challenging to implement them. There'll be many challenges down the road, but we know what the solutions are. We just need the funds and the rigorous planning to achieve the outcomes, and the outcomes will be incredible once we achieve those. So yeah, appreciate any support that we can get and really just for people also to promote the project to their friends and colleagues as well would be fantastic. Anton, it's been great having a chat to you and I really hope that we get some more support. Um, Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Adam. And as I said, I'm very happy to come back at a later stage and provide you and your guests with further updates. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books Online Store to help get all the best birding and nature books into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life Project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link either in the comment section of this podcast or our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Don't forget to follow The Birding Life on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Bird Lesser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a life list while playing your part in social conservation, as well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.